folks, he said, well, shall we close in prayer? I think he was speaking of his own sermon. <laughs> now mine begins. <laughs> we are in 2 Timothy chapter 4, if you'd like to turn there in your Bibles. Paul's life is drawing to a close. He's been arrested and blamed in part for the burning of Rome. That's happened in 64 AD. He's been found guilty by Nero, he and Paul both, of serving an incendiary God. Our God is a refiner's fire. And so Nero found them to be convenient scapegoats. He is now in the Mamertine dungeon. Formerly he had been arrested and put in a allowed to rent his own house while he awaited trial, but this is now the winter of the year 67. He's been found guilty of sedition and insurrection, and he is awaiting execution. And he has time to write this one final letter. And it's instructive to me, he doesn't write to the churches. He writes to the person that is closest to his own heart, and that is young Timothy. He sees Timothy as not only his son in the faith, but the one who would inherit his ministry. He realizes his days are drawing to a close. He, he may be days, weeks away from his final execution, but this is such a tender and heartfelt and personal letter to his protege and now successor in the ministry. But what I've done in going through this myself, because it's the most personal of all of his letters, is I've kind of put myself in Timothy's shoes. I want to hear what Paul says is really important to him. I want to know what things must be passed on to the next generation. The Lord Jesus Christ is the shepherd of every one of us. He's got a unique calling and ministry to every one of us. Some men are born into greatness and others have it thrust upon them, but we, we must always be ready to pick up the mantle if some drastic change occur, occurs in our life, we can't throw in the towel and give up. There is work to be done for the kingdom of God. And every one of us has to be prepared for that. Catastrophe takes us all by surprise. The death of a, of a loved one, a, a significant loss, a change in job later in life, a, a health diagnosis that's unfavorable. These things can only be met to the extent that we're prepared in Christ Jesus you got to be reading, you got to be praying, you got to be worshiping, or when the inevitable crises of life occur, you won't be ready. You'll just fall apart like the people in the world. So what Paul is telling Timothy is, son, take these words seriously. You have to be prepared constantly. I'm not only giving you the entirety of my ministry but you will uniquely fulfill that role as God has equipped you. And the same is true of each one of us. Each one of us in this room is as different as different could be, and God has a unique and fantastic plan for each one of us, a ministry that the Lord Jesus Christ himself has handed off to you. You can only find out what your calling in life is to the extent that you're in his word, listening to his Holy Spirit, seeking his face. If you're not doing this, can I tell you, nothing will happen. There is a whole generation of people out there today who say, I have no idea who I am, where I'm supposed to be, or what I'm supposed to be doing. Ask God. 
And universally, when I get people in my office or on the phone or I bump into this, they say, you know, I just my life seems meaningless without purpose. I don't know where I am. I don't know who I am. I don't know where I'm going. I inevitably ask them, are you in God's Word? No. Are you praying? No. Are you in fellowship? No. Do you, do you surround yourself with worship? No. Then how do you expect God to minister to you? Jeremiah had promised us from the mouth of the Lord, God said, you will seek me and you will find me, but only when you, take that personal, you seek me with all of your heart, God says, I will be found by you. The problem is few seek him today with all of their heart. We got too many cell phones Too many people obsessed with TikTok and Instagram and Facebook and nonsense that is of no eternal value. Let me give you a shocker today. Have you got your seat? There's no Facebook in heaven. Did you know that? There are no cell phones in heaven. There are no computers in heaven. Did you know that? We act like they're all important in this life. They don't even exist in heaven. And yet we today, the church is so obsessed with these nonsensical devices, though sometimes convenient. More often than not, they serve as nothing but worldly distraction. I mean, do you read your Bible as much as you spend on your tablet, your phone, your computer? Do you spend as much time in the Word of God, in prayer? I'm saying that to convict you. Please take this personal. Don't be offended. But if something needs to change, understand this, only you can change it. I wish I could. If I could somehow or another lasso you before you got in your car in the parking lot, drop you to the ground, hogtie you, and inject you with some Holy Spirit stuff, I would do it in a heartbeat. I can't make you read. But the people that don't read are depressed, discouraged, demoralized. Are you in the God's Word? No. Are you in prayer? No. Are you in fellowship? No. Really? You ought to think about being a biblically obedient Christian. This is the usual for Christianity. Christians have for 2,000 years been in the Word, been in prayer, been in fellowship, been in worship. That's what we do because that's who we are. If you're not doing that, you're dropping the ball. What's your excuse? I don't feel like it today. I just, you know... Who cares what you feel? Get off your lazy bones. Get in the Word of God. Get get some prayer going on. Call some folks to pray for you. Get with it. Satan wants you to throw a pity party between now and the time that Jesus comes back. And then what excuses can we offer him? That's why 2 Timothy is so important. Not only is it a personal letter to you and me about what's really important to those called into ministry, and we all are, But Paul shares his heart. Timothy has touched his heart. I mean, I understand this. I'm not sure I did understand how Paul felt about Timothy. There is nothing in Scripture that records uh, that he had any children. He may have. I don't know. doesn't say. But Timothy was his son in the faith. I I praise God for for the people that God has put in my life over the years where I, I I feel such a kinship with them. That I, I love him with all of my heart, though we're not, not biologically related. There is such a bond. 
a, a kinship that revolves around the, the work and the person of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul understands his ministry is, is finished. He has one last letter to write. And what he says in chapter 4 and verse 1 could not be a more serious charge. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. This is as sober a charge as could be given. It's as forceful as it could possibly be written in the original language. Paul knows that he's soon to be removed from this earth and the, his young protege will have no more opportunity to inquire of him or Paul to set the example for him. There was such an urgency in Paul's voice. What I hear is, these things I must pass on to you. You must grasp what I am saying, Timothy. This is the most serious and sober charge I can give you. As if we stand in the court of heaven above with God on the judge's bench, I charge you, I adjure you, I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ be faithful to God's calling on your life. I can say that to you with crystal clarity this morning. I charge you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as we stand before the judge of the universe, be faithful to God's calling on your life. We are, every one of us called, not, maybe you're not called to be a pastor or a missionary, a deacon, elder. Well, you should thank God for that. But each of us has a unique role to be fulfilled God's calling is upon your life and mine. Maybe you're called to be an apostle by the will of the Lord Jesus Christ, like Paul was. Maybe you are called to be a pastor or a spiritual leader. Maybe you're called to be a welder or a housewife or a medical doctor, a lawyer, the president of the United States. But God has a calling on your life that you will only discover to the extent that you seek his face. Jesus said, ask and seek and knock, but those were participles when he said it in Matthew chapter 7. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. Keep on asking. Don't give up. Satan has a very well-worn weapon. His most well-worn weapon is discouragement because discouraged people don't read. They don't pray. They don't share their faith. They don't worship. So understand where discouragement comes from. It's not a biological issue nearly so much as it's a spiritual issue. Satan is out to quiet the church today, to make us so self-absorbed with our technology and our own selfish interests that we ignore the kingdom of God and his call upon our lives. What's his call on your life? If you don't know, you should be in the process of trying to discover that. What is it that you have for me, Lord? Maybe I'm supposed to be a plumber or a welder or a car mechanic or home fellowship leader. Wherever you place me in life, Lord, I will use it to glorify your name. Just make that commitment. And then God will lead and guide. He'll open doors that no man can open and he'll close doors. He doesn't want you walking through. But if you're not inquiring of him, all bets are off. 
you could wind up turning 70 years old like I did this past week. That's why Kathy said, I bought this T-shirt for you. You will wear this in the pulpit. I've never worn a T-shirt in the pulpit before, so this is a bit unusual for me. But at least I didn't wear my flip-flops, so we're not all that cash. I know you don't care what, what I wear. <laughs> As I turn 70, though, it gives me pause to reflect back on what's really important. And as I look back over 70 years of life, do you know the first thing that stood out to me? How many years I've wasted. How many years I wasn't reading, I wasn't praying. How many years I wasn't saved. How many years I spelled on stupid selfishness, enjoying and indulging the sins of the world. And I look back and go, wasted time. What a wasted life. What I don't want to do is waste the rest of my life. I don't know how many years I have left, but neither do you. But the question behooves us is, are we making the most of the years that we do have? Are we redeeming the times? If God were to take us home tomorrow, could we stand in His presence hearing, well done, good and faithful servant, and knowing that we had done our work in this life? I had been a faithful ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether you're in the army, the Air Force, a mechanic, a doctor, a lawyer, are you representing Jesus Christ well? Or are you getting along so you can just fit in? You should stand out in this world as a Christian like Jesus did. He wasn't like anybody else except his heavenly Father. In the presence of God, he says, boy, that's serious, that's sober. Paul here describes those that are present in this courtroom, God himself, the judge of the universe, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead. He's the prosecuting attorney in this courtroom scene. And in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Wow. <laughs> in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead. If you have an old King James Version, it says the quick and the dead. Quick being an old English idiom, it means simply to be alive. Somebody once said that rush hour traffic on Academy Boulevard, there are two kinds of people, the quick and the dead. But that, that's not what Paul's referring to here. It simply means, you know, the alive. God will someday judge those that are alive and those that are dead. In view of his appearing and his kingdom. So, it's fascinating to me, at the end of his ministry that's now spanned over three decades, Paul looks back and he says, I believed in Jesus Christ when I first got saved. In fact, his earliest letters refer to the second coming of Jesus Christ. First and second Thessalonians stand out in my mind. And here he is at the end of his life, and he's still clinging to that hope. Jesus is coming back soon. I know that. He's coming back soon. Do you know that? The church has been waiting for 2,000 years, but his appearing is nearer now than when we first believed. Amen? Come soon, Lord Jesus, in view of his appearing in his kingdom. He'd been in ministry for so long. He always mentioning and standing up for Jesus, telling the church to look forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it's something that Paul still believes in with all of his heart 30 years later. There is so much to unpack just out of verse 1. I am blown away. And with all of my heart, I hope to pr prove uh, this to you. Number one, what I get out of verse 1 is that God and Christ are ever-present and watching over all that you and I do and say. 
there is a judge who sits on the throne of heaven above and he oversees and superintends his entire universe. And despite the scale of the cosmos, there is not the smallest detail of your life and mine that escapes his attention. There, there is no need that you have that is so small that he doesn't care about. He's even got the very hairs of your head numbered. I would say, who cares? But God says, I care. He cares about the smallest details. Second point I get out of verse 1 is that Jesus will judge everyone in the future, Christians as well as non-Christians. Revelation 20 describes the great white throne judgment of Christ, and he will judge the nations when he sets up his kingdom. And Jesus had preached that in Matthew 25 during his earthly ministry where he said in verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all of his angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Jesus is going to be king of the whole world, ruling from a throne in Jerusalem in the rebuilt temple. All of the nations, Jesus continued, will be gathered before him and he will separate the people uh, from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep, those that believe in him as shepherd, and the goats on his left, the sheep on his right, and the king will say to one on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, take your inheritance. You're a child of God. The father has left you an inheritance. It's not yours yet. You're not of age yet. But when Jesus comes, you will be. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus said, Jesus, the Son of God, the perfect one, the Savior of the world, he said hell is real. He said there is a day of accounting and we should live like there will be. Live rightly is what he's encouraging us to do. Because there is an eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. They will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Hmm. Eternal life. Don't think of it in terms of quantity, but quality. I can't think past 100 million, billion, trillion, quadrillion, quintillion, sextillion, septillion, octillion, nonillion, decillion years. I can't think past that. I can't think that far. It's difficult for me at my age to think much about tomorrow, and I can't remember yesterday. But this I know. There is a quality, a quality of life attached to eternal life that supersedes the number of years that we can count. It is to be in His presence. It's to be standing before His throne with the holy angels and choirs and sounds and instruments and voices all raised. In heaven, there won't be any, any denominational differences. We'll all be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So what you wear won't matter anymore. We'll all be clothed in His righteousness, His white garments. Not only is God in Christ ever, ever present, not only, secondly, will Jesus judge everyone in the future, but thirdly, verse 1 tells us that he is coming back. Now, if there's one thing I can stand on, it's the promises of Jesus. He, that's why the Bible says, if you're a Christian, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Keep your word. That has a thousand applications all the way from showing up at your work on time 
to being faithful in serving in the church and being faithful over all that God has given us. Jesus is coming back. As he said he would in John chapter 14, he said, you've trusted in God, trust also in me, for in my Father's house there's many dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, and he did, he said, I will come back and take you. That's called the rapture. Take you so that where I am, you may be also. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. When Jesus comes back and his feet touch the Mount of Olives, according to Zechariah, it's described for us in Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. He is coming back not as a babe in Bethlehem's manger, but King of kings, Lord of lords. And nobody's going to put, be putting him in chains again or plucking out his beard by the handfuls or putting a crown of thorns on him or crucifying him or flogging him. That happened once. It will not happen again. You serve the king of kings. He's adopted you. Get that. He adopted you. Do you understand the process of adoption? He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to adopt you. He chose to. Because that's what love does. Love pays the ransom for others. It's self-sacrificing, and that's what God did. Jesus came and gave his life in exchange for yours. That's, that's the miracle of the cross in a nutshell. He took your sins and gave you his righteousness in return. And that should humble you. It should make you grateful. It should look forward to what lies ahead in Christ Jesus. We have every reason to be thankful. And all of a sudden, as I dwell on these eternal truths, my discouragement, my depression, it starts to lift. I'm not looking at this world anymore. I don't care about what people say about me on Facebook or TikTok or Instagram or the rest of that social nonsense. I don't care about that stuff. Why? I'm not a citizen of this world. I am in this world, but not of this world. So stop acting like this world matters at all to you. It does not. You're a child of God. You're a citizen of heaven. Start thinking like it. Start acting like it. And if you use social media, use it to tell people about Jesus. Because those folks that you're talking to about trivial nonsense have no hope. They don't know the Lord. They're wondering, why am I here? Why do I exist? What's my purpose in life? And those questions can only be answered by a relationship with the God of the universe. You've got to tell them about Jesus. I'm too bashful. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me in this life, I'll be ashamed of you in the life to come. Be careful of that one. I want to stand up for Jesus these last days and not give way to social pressure that's trying hard to squash the voice of the church. Jesus is coming. But there, there's a fourth thing that stands out in verse 1. Jesus will establish his kingdom for a thousand years upon the earth, and every single nation will be subject to him. The world's a hot mess today, isn't it? I mean, we've got wars and rumors of wars and invasions and, and saber-rattling and nuclear threats and, and corruption all around the world. And you think, this world is not the way that God intended it to be. No, sin has, has nearly destroyed this world and the people of it with them as they engage the, their folly. Jesus someday is going to rule over what are currently the 200 nations of this world. 
And for a thousand years, we will see what the Garden of Eden should have been globally. Won't that be glorious? Until Jesus comes back, we've got to be busy about the master's business. That's why you're here. Did you know God did not put you here so you could indulge your flesh? Did you know that? Did you know that God did not give you life on planet Earth thinking that it was about you and the toys that you could acquire and the name that you could make for yourself on social media? Do you realize that's not why you're here? You're not here primarily for your job. That just provides you a convenient place to share your faith and people to pray for. That may or may not be your life's ministry, but it is an area of opportunity that God has given you to stand up for Jesus Christ. Timothy, he says, I give you this charge, this command. Preach the word. Be prepared, that is to share the word, when it's convenient and when it's not. That's what in season and out of season means. It doesn't mean, well, spring and fall you can do it, but winter and summer you, you, you can skip. That's not what it's saying. When it's convenient and when it's not, share the gospel. Stand up for Jesus Christ. Preach, and it's an imperative command. It's not a suggestion. This is what, Timothy, you have to do. And it's worded in the active voice that means, Timothy, only you can do this. This unique calling upon your life to preach the Word of God, you and you only can do this your way by the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you with the gifts that He has impressed upon you. You've got to do this. Do not be a silent Christian these last days. Keruso, the original word in the Greek language, means to proclaim or to herald like a, a public crier on a, a street corner in years past that would bellow out the truths of the day, the divine truth, the gospel. This tells me what I need to do, preach. I'm a pastor teacher by the will of God. Preaching carries with it an evangelistic thrust. Uh, teaching feeds the sheep that have already trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Tells me what to do, preach. Tells me the content of what I'm to preach. Didn't we study last week in 2 Timothy uh, 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed. And it was suitable for correction and reproof, training and righteousness, that sort of thing. But here's the deal. Not everybody who stands behind a pulpit and opens the Bible is teaching the Word. You assume that they are. But the words that come out of their mouth dictate whether, in fact, it's in alignment with God's truth or not. But we make a huge mistake today. We equate popularity with the presence of God. Oh, they got a huge TV ministry. I want to tune in to them. Is what comes out of their mouth the Word of God? Not everyone who opens the Bible and starts talking is preaching the Word. Many people preach about the Word. Many people preach parts of the Word that are convenient to their theology. Many share stories from the Word, anecdotes from the Word, but they don't teach the Word of God itself. There are lots of things we can preach, but what we must preach is the Word of God. There's not power in anything else. There's not inspiration in anything else. There is not hope anywhere else. To preach the Word is to preach Jesus. John chapter 1 and verse 1, you know it well. In the beginning was the Word, 
That's important. And the Word was with God. That's Jesus. And the Word was God. The Word became flesh, dwelt amongst us. In fact, Word is mentioned there in that first opening verse of John three times in just one verse. The Word, the Word, the Word. How important is it? It's everything. That's why Satan will do everything he can to keep you out of it. That's why you don't read. That's why you don't pray. He gets his hooks in your flesh. And you move on to other things and skip the Word of God on a daily basis. Realize that Jesus, didn't Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life? Yeah. John chapter 1 tells us He is the Word, the living Word. Why in the world would you not be in the Word of God daily? Well, I don't know where to begin. Begin in the Gospel of John, read a chapter, keep moving to the right. Questions? What do you do when you hit the maps in the back of the book? Well, maybe you're ready for Genesis chapter 1 then. Go back, start at the beginning. Chapter a day. I, quite frankly, many people do it many different ways, but I like to read in my daily quiet times a chapter out of the Old Testament, a chapter out of the Psalms or the Proverbs, and a chapter out of the New Testament because it keeps me balanced. Keeps me balanced. I encourage you to, to be in the Word of, of God daily. The church today is weak because it's not being preached from the pulpits. The people don't realize it's important, so they ignore it. And the church is in decline because of it. Don't be a church that is part of that decline. Don't be a child of God that ignores the Word of God. That, do you see how inconsistent that is? How can the child of God ignore the Word of God, which Jesus equated himself with in John chapter 1? We cannot. Our lives become known more for our hypocrisy than our fidelity at that point. To preach the Word is to preach Jesus. Jesus said, you shall know the truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. So he tells Timothy, you be sure to preach the Word when you get in the pulpit, buddy. The purpose of a pulpit is not to entertain but to proclaim the Word of God. That's the purpose of the pulpit. So I'm, I'm not a good entertainer. I, have, I can't dance. I'm not great with jokes. I'm not a funny guy. <sighs> My wife says, yes, you are. <laughs> I love you, honey. <laughs> purpose of the pulpit is not to entertain, but to proclaim the Word, Jesus Christ. And Jesus said the volume in the book was written about Him, didn't He? In Hebrews 10, 7, the volume of the book, everything in this holy Bible you hold in your hands speaks of Jesus or anticipates His coming, first or second coming. Preaching doesn't just take place from the pulpit in the church. You and I should be prepared to do it any time at all, any time, anywhere. The Holy Spirit could set up an opportunity for you to share Jesus with someone. Remember the old Boy Scout motto, be prepared. Boy, that's just good advice for the Christian. That's what Paul is telling Timothy. Be prepared because it could catch you off guard. You're going to be going to Walmart just looking for a package of hot dogs and wondering which ones you should get for the family that night, and somebody's going to come up to you and go, little man, you know, some little old lady, like, young man, could you reach that top shelf for me and get me a packet of hot dogs? And you're going, leave me alone, lady. You're thinking in your mind, leave me alone. I'm just here for hot dogs. Get out of my I just want to, it's Walmart. Really? 
So you reach up and give her a package of hot chocolate. She goes, well, thank you so much. I've had such a terrible day. I was just told by the doctor today that I have cancer and six months to live. And you're thinking, I don't want to do this right now. I'm just here for the hot dogs. i got to get back home. My wife's going to kill me. Kids are waiting on hot dogs. And you know that God has just given you an opportunity to share with somebody who may or may not know about Jesus. You've got to step up in that moment because you may be the only person that God will send to say something of hope to that precious lady. You've got to be prepared, instant, in season and out of season. How do you do that? How can you stay prepared all the time? Well, Roland will tell you in the army, they practice, they practice, they practice. So practice being in the Word, practice prayer, practice, practice, practice. And when the moment comes, you'll know exactly what to do with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The army has its weapons, amen, Roland? <laughs> the Christian has his weapons. The sword of the Spirit's the only one that's mentioned, by the way, that's offensive in nature. You want to start whacking at the enemy, you pull out the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. He'll run. You want to put the enemy to flight? That's the way to do it, threaten him with your sword. Wish I had my Makaira now. <laughs> a Wednesday night I brought out this steel sword. It's a, it's a replication of a Greek Makaira that's also called a gladius, where we get the word gladiator. And there's a short sword about yay long that, man, it, no, no, it's okay. A formidable weapon. The Word of God is more formidable than the Roman Makaira ever thought of being. And it's a weapon you possess. Your skill with that weapon will depend upon the amount of time that you spend with it. They tell you in the army, in basic training, you're going to live with your rifle. You live with it. It's your friend. It's your mama. It's your daddy. It's everything to you. It's life itself on the battlefield. So they become intimately acquainted with their weapons, as the Christian should be with the Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit, which is our weapon. Take Jesus with you everywhere you go. Be prepared instant, in season and out of season. That's what he is telling him in verse 2 there. Be prepared. What do we have to do? Sometimes people need to be corrected. They think that Jesus is one God among many. Well, we need to correct that thinking and tell him that he is the only way, the only truth, the only life. We have to correct their false theology. Sometimes... We see a Christian brother or sister that needs to be rebuked. Sometimes there's a filthy joke told at work, and I need to take the person aside one-on-one -on -one and say, that's really despicable language. I'd appreciate it if you wouldn't make fun of the Lord Jesus Christ in my presence. I'd, I'd really appreciate it if you wouldn't curse using his name as a curse formula. I'd appreciate it if you'd keep the filth of the world to yourself. I have no interest in your pornography or dirty jokes, please. Be loving, be kind, be gentle. Do it one-on-one. -on -one. You're not out to humiliate them. You are out to rebuke them and correct them. And it's okay to do that. That's what being salt and light in this world is all about. Now, the first thing they're going to say is, well, who do you think you are? What are you, like a holy Joe? You think you're better than me? You go, no, I'm a sinner saved by grace. Would you like to know who saved me? His name is Jesus Christ. The world thinks that he's dead, but did you know that he rose from the dead on the third day and he's alive today and seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven? What an open door you have one-on-one -on -one with that pagan that may never have heard a thing that just came out of your mouth. 
Maybe that's why Jesus sent you. Maybe that's why you're in the job that you're at. Maybe that's God's calling upon your life. And that calling will give your life meaning and purpose and direction and joy unspeakable. Encourage, rebuke, correct, with great patience and careful instruction. For a time will come, verse 3, when men will not put up with sound doctrine instead to suit their own desires. They will gather around them a great number of teachers willing to say what their itching ears want to hear. Hmm. There is so much out in the world today that you and I can effectively counter. You know, there's so much incorrect thinking and theology out there, so we use the Word of God to correct people. Verse 3 reminds us that there is so much sin out there, sometimes we encourage them towards godliness. There is so much discouragement out there and such a diminishing of holy living, we need to encourage them. That's an interesting word in the Greek, parakaleo, means to come alongside of, and it means to not only come alongside of, them, but properly to make a call from being up close and personal. You think about that, uh, the word from, para, up close and personal, alongside of, kaleo, to call. So in today's vernacular, you might word that, just make a phone call. Maybe there's somebody that God would lay on your heart that just needs to hear from you. I prefer phone calls to texts because you can't hear the tone of the person's voice in a text. I know young people like to text and they got rubber thumbs and they can do that all day long. Good, God bless you, you know. I'd rather, I'd rather have some FaceTime with a person. I'd rather talk to them and hear the tone of their voice. Because sometimes if you've noticed in texts and emails, you don't know whether they hate you or love you. Or if you're one of those people that talks into your phone but doesn't double check what you say and you hit send, and they think, what a despicable cretin they are, you know. Can't believe they said that to me, you know. Check your messages before you send them. Just a tip to the wise. This is for free today. Think about that. We want to encourage people because there is so much discouragement, and when it starts to infiltrate the church, we know that Satan has done his homework. We should do ours. We should do ours. Because the enemy will not stop. He will not stop. For the time will come, verse 3, where doctrine, teaching, didascalia, instruction, doctrine, learning, sound teaching uh, about the Word of God won't be tolerated in the last days. But people will instead gather around themselves a great number of teachers. The most popular teachers are not necessarily the most faithful teachers. They may be popular, but are they faithful to God and His Word? They may be entertainers, but please... Now, we shouldn't assume a teacher is scratching itching ears just because he's popular, but neither should we assume that he's faithful to God's Word just because he's popular. We've gotten into that trap here in Colorado Springs many times over the last 10 or 20 years where we've seen a charismatic figure rise and you go, oh, they're so godly, oh, they're so anointed, oh, they're so this and so that. And there may be sin in their life that would stagger you if you knew about it. But we assume, oh, God's using the mightily in order. Maybe they're a Samson who's got secret sins in the closet that need to be rebuked. 
we assume popularity has something to do with godliness. It does not. It does not. Think about it. Jesus himself, the Son of God, after, after three years had a church, if you will, of 70 people. 70 disciples. Really? That's the best you can do after three years and you're the Son of God? Popularity does not equate with faithfulness in the things of God because false teachers always tell people what their itching ears want to hear. In fact, I find that if you don't develop an appetite for God's Word, you will develop itching ears. You'll look for something to fill that void in your life. You're not getting input from God and His Word, so you're going to look for input from somewhere else. You will develop itching ears. You will become a slave to the world and the opinion of other people on social media. Isn't it interesting that in this generation there's been greater numbers of suicides since the advent of social media than ever before? So why do we feel that we need to get our sense of self-worth from social media? Jesus didn't care what people thought about him. I can tell you what Jesus would do if he had a cell phone. He'd take a hammer to it. He didn't care. But today we've, we've wrapped up all of our sense of self-worth and identity into how many likes and dislikes we get. Are you serious? What is wrong with you? As a Christian, you know better than that. And yet we become a slave to those things and think that it's okay because it's okay in the world. You're not of this world. You've got to make a break. Stop that nonsense because Satan will put you in shackles and keep you there for a long time. If you don't have an appetite for the Word of God, you too can develop itching ears. Oh, that pastor, he just tells the greatest jokes. Oh, Oh, I listen to this guy because he's such a great storyteller. Ooh, but this one is so charismatic, so full of energy. He's so cool. He's got tattoos from here to here, and he wears short sleeve shirts so he can show them off to the audience all, all to every Sunday. Or, look at me. I've been working out in the gym. So they wear their T-shirts up to here. I don't know why. Not to show their farmer's stand, but to show the size of their muscles. Can I tell you? I don't care how big or small your muscles are. Church isn't the place to parade that stuff, and yet pastors, pastors do that kind of silliness all day long, and you think, guys, preach the Word. Just stick with the Word. Stop trying to be cool. Stop trying to see how many people like or dislike you. Stop being a slave to the things of the world. So many people today who want to be entertained, and so many churches have become entertainment centers because of it entertainment that rivals the world. So the world has its concerts. We've got to have our concerts. The world has its smoke pots and lasers, and we have to have the same. Why do we aspire to be what the world is? Why do we think the world is so cool? I mean, do you see Jesus? It might have escaped my attention. Did Jesus somewhere go to the Roman baths? Did he go to the Olympic Games? Did Jesus get obsessed with all of the horse races in the hippodromes around? Was he obsessed with entertainment? Why would we aspire to be anything like the world is? It doesn't have a handle on, on its priorities. We can't be drawn into that. You remember this itching ears thing is interesting. Remember King's, uh, Israel's King Ahab in the Old Testament? He was going to war to retake a town called 
Ramoth Gilead from the king of Aram. It's recorded for you back in First uh, Kings 22. And he'd, he wanted to enlist the aid of King Jehoshaphat of Judah, who said, you know, fine, I'll go to war with you, that's fine. But can we inquire maybe of a prophet of Yahweh? Let's inquire of the Lord. And so Ahab brings in 400 false prophets who tell King Ahab exactly what he wants to hear. Oh, be victorious. You're going to gore the Arameans like these iron horns that I've made. And they're dancing around. Be victorious. Oh, yeah, great. Except they were all wrong. Every one of them, all 400, were wrong. But they told the king what he wanted to hear. And so Jehoshaphat said, you know, this circus you got going on, that's all great and well. But do you have a prophet of Yahweh here? You know, the God of Israel? I mean, the real deal? And he goes, yeah, you know, we got this one guy named Micaiah. But, but I, I, I can't stand listening to him because he never tells me what I want to hear. <laughs> He's always doom and gloom. Micaiah's brought in and says, King, you're going to die in battle. Well, I didn't want to hear that. But that's what's going to happen. Your false prophets, every one of them, wrong. But they are the people that you've gathered around yourself because you don't want to hear from God. You have itching ears, and you want somebody to tell you in the name of God that everything's going to turn out just rosy for you without you having to give up your sin or repent at all. Itching ears. I remember Jeremiah, what a thankless ministry he had. He was just as equally as unpopular as Micaiah was. His scroll was burned by one of the last kings of Judah, Jehoiakim, and their judgment was just around the corner. Yet they didn't want to listen to God. In Isaiah's day, 750 years before Christ, it wasn't much different. In Isaiah 30, in verse 9, it says, These are a rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. Say to the seers, see no more visions, and to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things. Prophesy illusions. It should be all about unicorns and rainbows and candy and hot dogs or whatever your deal is. Leave this way. Get off this path. We don't want to stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. That's the day and age we live in today where you can go to any number of very popular, very large, very wealthy churches right here in Colorado Springs and not hear the Word of God. You may hear a message about the Word of God, truths out of it or an allegory about it or stories out of it, but you don't get the Word of God chapter by chapter, verse by verse, as it was written originally by God. We are in perilous times these last days. One commentator described itching ears as, quote, endless curiosity and insatiable desire for variety. They want their ears tickled with the language and the accent of the person, abandoning the good and faithful preacher for the fine speaker instead. We don't want to hear from the John the Baptist. We don't want to hear from the Elijahs and the Jeremiahs. We don't even want to hear from Jesus unless it paints him out to be a slightly effeminate Guy who demands nothing of us and just loves us with sloppy agape. Those times are upon us. 
So he reminds Timothy, you should shun all of these things and instead devote yourself to teaching the Word of God. Verse 4, they will turn their ears away from the truth, turn aside to myths. Interesting, fanciful, made-up stories. I made the mistake this past week because it was free of pulling up Thor, God of love and thunder. What a waste. I should have gotten a hot dog. In there, there's a whole pantheon of gods, most of which are drunk, all of which are lascivious, you know, and they're making a mockery. There is no eternal life. Gods that can be killed, gods made in the image of man instead of God making man in his own image. It was a distortion of every Christian value that we could possess. We don't, is that clear? Don't see it. I mean, my recommendation to you, even if it's free on whatever thing you got going on your cable, skip it. You'd be better off watching Porky Pig. You really would. Or old episodes of, you know, the Three Stooges or something. Lots better entertainment. Peter says this in 2 Peter chapter 2, that there were also false prophets among the people just as there were false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In other words, Christianity is not popular these last days. Have you noticed that? Oh, those Christians, they cling to their God, their Bible, and their guns. Well, I don't know about how you feel about guns, but I am definitely going to cling to my God and my Bible. It's a, it, we just have to make that stand these last days. It's not a popular stand. You'll be called puritanical. You'll be called every name under the sun, but we stand for the Word of God, the Son of God, the truth of God, the Holy Spirit of God. We stand on these things, and I will not be moved. You've just got to take that kind of attitude in this life because Satan is going to oppose you. Satan will do everything he can to discourage you and demoralize you. That's Satan. God is the God of all hope. Get into God and you can recover that which the enemy has stolen. I don't want my ears tickled. Good grief. But you look at the popularity of mythology today. You know, Norse mythology, Viking theology, Greeks, on and on. The, the Harry Potter series uh, year, years back popularized witches and warlocks and demonism and incantations and magic, all of which are forbidden by scriptures. And I was amazed at the number of Christian households going to see Harry Potter. Why would you waste your time on st in the name of entertainment? Does that sound hollow? I mean, imagine yourself standing before in the courtroom of God and them asking you, why in the world were you exposing yourself to, you know, movies about witches and warlocks and demonism and incantations and magic, all of which are forbidden in Scripture? You did it for why? And yet the Christian community bought into that thought, well, it's not going to affect me. Are you sure? Garbage in, garbage out. All of these things forbidden by Scripture, the latest Thor, <laughs> like, like Love and Thunder, you know. A movie that more outwardly denies the afterlife 
and, and introduces us to a generation of false gods who aren't gods at all. Teaching at the end, and I heard the old Beatles song in my head, all you need is love, all you need, you know, and that's what the end of the movie was, all you need is love, without God, without God. Can't have it, God is love. First John 4, 16 Oh, I love the Word of God. This, is, this to me is so essential that I get a handle on this, these last days. Verse 5, as we wrap up this morning's study, <laughs> silly goose, I prepared all 22 verses, but that would be a six-hour sermon. Of course, if you want to stick around, I've I got 10 pages of notes. I'd, I'd be glad to share it with you. Next, we'll hit it next week for sure. Verse 5, and this, this, is, this is the Lord really addressing us. But you, singular, you, personally, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. The implication there is without complaint. Without complaint. And do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your particular ministry. Endure hardship. That repeats the same Greek word twice, once in a verb form, once in a noun form, to undergo difficult things, uh, to be afflicted, endure that hardness of life that comes at you, to, to suffer trouble. Now, he was called to be an evangelist, which is simply one who shares the gospel. We're all called to be evangelists in that degree. But the, you know there are particular people that are gifted in the area of evangelism, like Billy Graham was or his son Franklin Graham, that just blow you out of the water. They go, man, I mean, they, they can, or Greg Laurie uh, in, in my own, own generation, an evangelist, simply one who shares the gospel. But I read recently a survey done by George Barna and his institute, quote, when asked if they have a personal responsibility to share their faith with others, 73% of born-again Christians said yes. Do you believe that you have a responsibility to share the gospel with other people in this world? Do you believe it? Praise Jesus, there's a lot more than 73% here. Thank you. When this conviction is put into practice, however, uh, Barna notes the numbers shift downward. Only half, 52% of born-again Christians say they actually did share the gospel at least once this past year with someone of different beliefs in the hope that they might accept Jesus Christ as Savior. So three-quarters of the church believes that they should, but only half the church does. Did you catch that? What is stopping us today? The fear that somebody will make fun of us or that we won't get the words right or make the same excuse. I was just reading this morning in my quiet time where God is calling Moses to be the deliverer of Israel out of their Egyptian bondage where they've been slaves. They'd been there for 430 years. And I was amazed. I started counting how many excuses Moses offered God why he couldn't do it. Have you ever read that passage? It's in Exodus chapter 3. But Moses said, you know, I can't speak. I'm not fluent. I don't have a huge vocabulary, you know. And in the end, he finally gets honest. He goes, I don't want to do it. I just don't want to do it. Can't you find somebody else to do it for me? And, he, and God goes, okay, I'll give you your brother Aaron. He can speak. And when he opens his mouth, it'll be like 
God speaking through him, you know. But excuse after excuse after excuse. And I think that you and I have to stop with the excuses. Why are you not reading? The Holy Spirit is asking. Well, I got this excuse, got that excuse. Why in the world are you going to the big fancy church with the false teaching? Well, I got this excuse, I got that excuse. Why are you not praying and reading and sharing your faith and worshiping like the Scripture tells us to do? Why, why, are you, why, are, why are you so drawn to the cult of personality? Why are you so obsessed with entertainment when you know there won't be cell phones or multimedia in heaven? You know that, but why do you live for it now? And we come up with excuse, 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 excuse. And we know that we're wrong. We know that it sounds shallow and hollow, and it is. Then sink your teeth into God these last days. This was interesting uh, as well to me. Three-quarters of churchgoers say they feel comfortable in their ability to effectively communicate the gospel, but when asked how many times they had personally shared the gospel or even, quote, invited an unchurched person to attend a church service or some other program at church, nearly half of all the church attendees responded, zero. We know that we should share, but we don't. We know that we should invite people to church, but we don't. We know we should live for Christ, but we don't. We know that we should read, but we don't. We know that we should pray, but we don't. And I would just present to you this morning, this would be a great day for you to come face-to-face with all of your excuses and drop them. Drop them. God loves you. He has so much for you. He means for you to be salt and light in this sinful world, and that's why He has put you where you're at. You're not there by accident. You may only be there for a season, and you'll move on like the Apostle Paul did so many times in his ministry. He, he was itinerant in every sense of the word. But what is required of us, verse 5 winds up with, discharge all of the duties of your ministry. God's calling upon your life. You've got to fulfill this calling. You know you should share. Share. Stop with the excuses. Well, if I share at work, I could get fired. Get fired. Get fired. There's other jobs out there. Good grief, they're paying $22 an hour at In-N-Out Burger. Good grief. You could become rich flipping burgers at In-N-Out Burger. Isn't that amazing? What an age we live in today. Well, like I said, I, uh, I have the most wonderful five-hour sermon here for you. Um, I would like to probably save some of it for next week. Uh, you know, but, but what Paul is trying to do is motivate Timothy to change. Timothy had a problem spiritually. He was timid. That's not just a, a wordplay on his name. He was a timid individual. He was reluctant to share. He was called to be an evangelist, but made excuse after excuse after excuse, like Moses did, why he couldn't do what God had asked him to do. You can't. Don't listen to the voice of the enemy that plants words of doubt and division and discouragement. Don't listen to that voice. You are a child of God. That's your standing. That's who you really are. The power that is available to you is the power that created the universe over our heads. How much power do you need? He's got lots. Ask, seek, and knock. Like he had previously told Timothy in his first letter to him in chapter 4, verse 7, train yourself. 
to be godly. That puts a responsibility upon you and I to pursue God, doesn't it? Do that. Do that. I know we live in an age of endless uh, distraction and, and discouragement and a thousand other things you could do besides read your Bible. But Paul had encouraged Timothy back in chapter 2 of this book, study to show yourself approved. Study what? The Word. Study the Word. And that's what you and I should be doing. Make, make a study of the Word of God. Not just devotionals or Christian bestsellers that you picked up at the Christian bookstore. Not just commentaries. Christian bestsellers, while they may be profitable, they are not the Word of God. Spend time in the Word of God. Study of the Word itself. Some pa young pastors have asked me, Pastor Jim, what do you, what do you study to get prepared for your sermons? And I said, well, I study the Word of God. Yeah, but what commentaries do you use? Commentaries were written by people that the Holy Spirit touched in generations past. Why would, why, why would I want to try to steal a secondhand blessing from them when maybe the Holy Spirit wants to speak to me in a new and a fresh way? I don't, commentaries are good, but don't you want to hear from God? I don't want to hear from commentaries. I want to hear from God. Well, what do you study, Pastor? No, I study the Word of God. No, really, what do you, what do you study? Where do you get your jokes? From my wife. <laughs> Hot dogs always come into play somewhere in the sermon. That, you know, but what I want to know, like the back of my hand, is the Word of God. I want to see this thing in three dimensions from beginning to end. I want to see it like we're playing three-dimensional chess, and I want to have a handle on it. I want to have a grip on it because I'm going to walk into eternity and meet up with the one who is the Word. I can't wait. I can't wait. Let's stand and close in prayer, shall we? Study to show yourself approved. Study the Word. Study the Word because studying the Word alone in sermon preparation, I have found, makes me far more dependent upon the Lord far more dependent upon prayer instead of stealing somebody else's stuff and telling you that it's my own. I just want to spend time in God's Word and in the Word itself because Scripture interprets Scripture. Heavenly Father, we commit ourselves into Your hands, Your Word, oh, the promises that You give us, the commands, the instruction, the correction. Every time we open up the book, there's something to be learned. So keep us in your word, Lord. I don't ever want my sermons to be about the word or anecdotal or allegorical or hit and miss or cherry pick a dozen different places in Scripture without any acknowledgement of context. I want to just go word by word, chapter by chapter, book by book, and I want it to speak to me whether it steps on my toes or not. I need correction. I need reproof. I need training in righteousness. I need, I need all of these things that your word offers. So we open wide our hearts and say, have your way with us, Lord, where I need to be corrected. Correct me. Where I need to change, change me. Where I have been distracted by the things of the world and paid the price for that, lift us up from that sewer. Clothe us in your own righteousness once again and help us to realize these last days what's really important in the light of your imminent return. Oh, I am so looking forward to you coming, Lord Jesus, establishing your throne on this earth for a thousand years. 
oh, a reign of righteousness where there won't be any wars or rumors of wars or political corruption or malfeasance of any kind. There won't be starvation or disease. I can't wait, Lord Jesus. My heart cries out, come, Lord Jesus, come. Maranatha. But until that day arrives, there's work to be done. That's why you put us where we're at. Whether it's in the army or I'm a mechanic or I'm a pastor, Sunday school teacher, mom at home raising kids, each of us has been called by you. Now equip us and fill us because we are your children, Lord. Show us your will and help us to walk by the guidance of your Holy Spirit and your word. Father, in Jesus' name, amen. God is good, amen. Amen. <laughs>